Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting firm RiderFlex. If you enjoyed today's guest interview, please give it a like and be sure to subscribe to the RiderFlex podcast. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Paul Pittman on the Rider Flex podcast. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi. Doing Hi, right? how are you, Steve? I'm doing just fine. Where are you at today, Denver? Yeah, I'm sitting in my uh, sitting in my loft in Denver down by Union Station. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. You live now. It's interesting. A farm guy lives downtown, but I guess for your business, maybe that's maybe that's yeah. Uh, I, I live here because it's easy to commute to the airport, and uh, you know most of our assets are spread around the country. But I'm a big fan of Denver and Colorado, so this is where the business is headquartered. Tell us about your early life a little bit, where you grew up, family, mom, dad, siblings. Give me the, give me some background if you don't mind. Sure, I grew up uh, I grew up in Central Illinois, a town called Champaign. My dad was a school teacher there, vocational arts, you know, taught wood shop, all those sorts of things. My mom was a school teacher and ultimately a, a homemaker. And, uh, you know, very sort of normal, middle class, mid, small Midwestern uh, background. Um, my parents had both grown up on farms and still owned a part of the farms that their families had. And so I was drawn to agriculture as a passion uh, early in my life and took me a while to get back. But as we'll get into later, this is that's what I do now. So they, uh, they, did they live in town though? So did you grow up in town or yeah, we lived out, we lived out in the country, but not really a farm, just a few acres. Just enough to have a couple of chickens. and, and yeah, Exactly. Uh, chickens, <laughs> dog, chickens, dogs, ponies, and big garden. Big garden. Yeah. Now, if you're like me, we're almost the same age. You had to work the garden a little bit, right? Oh, you bet. You, you <laughs> bet. In my, in my household, if you didn't work the garden, you didn't eat. Right. I remember those days very well. Uh, any siblings? Uh, yeah, I've got two sisters and uh, they're both still living in the Midwest. One's a professor at Ohio State and the other one is uh, lives up in Minneapolis with her husband and kids. And your folks, are they passed? Are they still alive? Uh, my, my mother's still alive. She's 92 years old and going strong. And my father passed away in 2018, but uh, both had, you know, long and happy lives. Married the whole time? Yep. Wow. Yeah. How about that? All right. Retired from teaching? Yes. Yep. Retired from teaching. Was retired longer than he actually taught. So uh, that's uh, that's pretty good. That's now, yeah. Did you have him in class? Did you have to go to his class, no. by the way? No, no, I didn't go to his class. I tried to make sure that didn't happen. But I'll tell you what. And, you know, if you got in a little scuffle with somebody in the hall, it didn't take very long for your dad <laughs> to end up in the principal's office, which wasn't so good. <laughs> Hey, you remember the principal's office back in the uh, 80s when we actually got licks? Remember that licks? Uh, I do remember this quite well. <laughs> yeah. And in my case, it, my dad would show up and say, hey, to the principal, give me that stick. I want to hit him. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember the it was always detention or licks. Which one you want? I always took the licks. It was as fast. Exactly. I'd rather get out of school. <laughs> uh, now, what kind of kid were you? Well, I mean, a teenager, were you a good kid, medium, bad? I was a pretty good kid, by no means perfect, but I was a, you know, halfway decent athlete and a halfway decent student and sort of right there in the in the middle. And and that was, uh, you know, that's kind of where I was. 
Did you play? What you were you a three sport guy? Were you like football? I was. I I, I I wrestled. I played football. I swam. Well, okay. Now you wrestled. See, now any anytime I talk to somebody, my boys were wrestlers. Both of my sons were wrestlers. I have a high degree of respect for that sport. After sitting for eight years in gyms and watching these boys go through this wrestling, it's a tough sport, man. It's a tough sport. A lot of discipline, particularly with the weight loss and everything else. But uh, that was it. Was it was a good life's experience. Uh, how about college? Now you uh, went to the, U- the University of Illinois. Uh, did you uh, do any intramurals, any sports there, or just study? Um, I played. Uh, I played water polo there, uh, which oh. is a club level sport at Illinois, not a full varsity sport. But I played uh, played water polo when I was there, and uh, okay. you know, and I was uh, I was also uh, the, the student body president of the University of Illinois before I left. Nice. Okay. Very good. Oh man, we got some stuff in common. Now I didn't make president. I was student body vice president, but it was a small college. Hey, being being student body president of the University of Illinois, that's that's kind of a big deal. So leadership for you super early on. Was it like that in high school too? Natural leader? Uh less so. I was a I was a kid a little late to develop. I was a okay. little bit of a you know, I was smaller, I wasn't super confident. I was uh you know, not a real popular kid in high school. I sort of blossomed in college. Uh, but, you know, just as an aside, uh, blossomed after a rough start. I dropped out of college after about after about a year because I had crappy grades. And back to my dad, my dad's comment was, I don't pay for C's. And so if, uh, <laughs> I went and worked. I went and worked construction for six months and then went back and uh, never got a B after that. That, uh, yeah, working construction in the summertime—that's uh, usually all it takes, right? One summer, exactly. Like, it made me—it made me a much better student. I grew up a lot. <laughs> so funny. One summer, I went to Houston and worked in the refineries uh, in the middle of the summer. And, Holy uh, cow! You'd have lost yeah, a lot of weight. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was brutal. And uh, I quickly called my friends back home and said, "Hey, that little retail clerk job—you know, with the air conditioner—can I come back and do that?" <laughs> I bet. I bet. Were you? Uh, how about college? Did you loosen up a little bit? A little, little partying? Any trouble? Yeah, anything? I was. I was. I was pretty. I was pretty social in. Uh, I was pretty social in college, and got out, and you know, kind of came into my own, matured, and uh, became a you know somewhat more popular kid, and all of that. Uh, but I was, you know, I was said once I went back to school after the the time away, I was a pretty disciplined student as well. Okay, very good. Did you know what you wanted to do? I wanted to go back to my family farm. That's what I wanted to do. My dad still owned part of the farm with his brothers, and I wanted to go back and farm, but I graduated in 1985. That is the very first Farm Aid concert ever, was in the summer of 1985, at the University of Illinois Memorial Stadium. So a very bad time to go back into a small family farm. So I luckily... Uh, I'd already mentioned I was student body president and I got an opportunity to go to Harvard to the Kennedy School of Government um, because I had good grades and they were they were recruiting uh, some you know Midwestern kids from the big state schools. And I just was lucky enough to get a spot so I went on, to, on to Harvard. Very nice. Now, at the time, any any uh, relationships at the time, serious girlfriends or you, you weren't married yet, obviously. I don't no, know. No, no. No, no girlfriends, no, no not, relationships. Not, none of that. Okay. Okay. So then you did the Harvard thing. And then what were you, were you still thinking I'm going to go back to the family farm or what were you thinking? No, I went, well, I, I, it, it, that door was sort of closed because it was a, 
half a decade or more of really tough economics for for small farms for sure. I see. I see. Um, so I, I I I'd been in the Coast Guard as well. I was uh, at the ROTC basically in college, and I was in the Coast Guard. I see. So I did Coast Guard Reserve stuff. I did uh, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and then I went. The other choice when I left Illinois was to go straight to law school. And when I got this chance to go to Harvard, I just thought it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Uh, so I went ahead and went to law school after Harvard at the University of Chicago, got a law degree. I see. And then I, I ended up practicing law. It was my first sort of full-time job post-schooling. Uh, what what area? I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. I um, see. That's what I, that's what I did. I was in New York City with a big firm called Sullivan and Cromwell and uh I was only there for about six months and I moved to an investment bank uh, and continued to do mergers and acquisitions work, but did it on the finance side instead of the legal side. Mm-hmm. Okay. I see where it all ties together now. What happened when you were being, when you were a lawyer in that field, you, you met some friends and then they recruited you over to the. And basically I was working on a deal and got recruited away okay. to a, to a, to a small firm called Wasserstein Perella. And then I ultimately worked for Merrill Lynch in, uh, um, Merrill Lynch in both uh, New York and London. And then you fell in love with the whole merger acquisition, the number. Oh, I, yeah, I, lo- I love that business. It was exciting. I did, a, I did mergers and acquisitions for emerging markets, primarily based in London. That was the bulk of the 10 or 11 years I spent on Wall Street okay. and did a lot of transactions in, uh, you know, former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, some in the Middle East, a little bit in Africa. Uh, and built a pretty good business uh, with a team of people, um, yeah, based in London, doing those sorts of transactions. Okay, very good. Now, uh, how about f- at this time, personally, where were you with family at this point? Married kids? Anything? I still wasn't. I still wasn't married. I met my now now wife and girlfriend while I was at uh, uh, while I was in that part of my career, being a, a lawyer and a banker. We dated for a long, long time because she was. Uh, uh, she was living in um, New York and I was living in London, which made it a little bit of a slow courtship. Uh, but we eventually got married and uh, I'm married. I've got two daughters. Daughters are 17 and 19. Um, and, uh, you know, that part of my life has all been good and comfortable. Uh, so a uh, great wife and makes my life easy. Now, the teenage and, daughters, you got a rebel in there anywhere? Or are they both? Speaking, uh, not not really. I'm I'm the same disciplinarian my dad was. So okay. that rebelhood, uh, they're they're pretty adventurous, outgoing. They're, you know, uh, skiers and ski racers and ski patrollers uh, and a lot uh, of time outdoors. But uh, when I put my foot down, they do what I ask. <laughs> Your dad was uh, born in the 30s. 1930. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, different breed, different breed. Very different. Very different. <laughs> Kids, you know, children of the depression, you know, first. Yes, sir. First ten, yeah. I mean, li- literally first 10 years of both my mother and father's life and not sure they had shoes that fit or shoes that, you know, and you know, there was a difficult world for almost everybody. And, and they, totally different. they totally te- different. took that with them through their whole life. It's interesting as I visit with you here, just for the first few minutes, like I can, I can feel the, the the small town farm your dad but then but then you have this you can tell you've been sprinkled with the new york and the london and that's that's kind of colored your personality well, a little it's bit all, it's, an, 
the mix. It's all mi- it's all mixed up. Yeah, it's in it's there. All mixed yeah. Up. yeah, but you know, look, you get your 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 life, your career success, your family success. It's is you know, it's taking the good from all the different places you've been and trying yeah. to figure out pretty quickly what's not good and staying away from it. Where's the now? It's interesting. You've been all over the world, but you chose Denver now to live. And I have interviewed so many people on the Rider Flex podcast. And of course, I live in Colorado too. And I've and I've talked to people that have been all over the world, and they come back and they live in Colorado. Isn't that interesting? Is this is this? Would you rank this as one of the top places on the planet? You've oh, it's been the to? best. It's a it's the best place. It's the best place I've ever lived. And there's really two reasons for that. The climate is outstanding. Yes. Like um, it really, I mean, it really is even, you know, I, I always jokingly say to people, we don't have to really live in winter in Denver. We get to drive to it. You know, you get five or six days of winter, really a year, the rest yeah. of the time it's 25, 30 miles away. You can find <laughs> winter. And, point. and then the other thing is, is I'm, I'm kind of a ski nut and that's what drove me, uh, skiing and mountains generally. And, uh, I always wanted to live in Colorado. You grow up in a hot, humid place like Central Illinois. Colorado feels great. How about the worst place you've ever lived? Um, or, or worked, I guess, or, or temporarily. Well, probably, stayed. probably the worst was New York City, quickly followed by San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and they could I mean, be they could be great, but they've let the you know they've let the the cities and the urban areas just fall apart, and it's not a very happy life there anymore. You know, we could do a whole episode on the whole homeless situation with San Francisco. You have to come back for that show. We could do it. Yeah, we can. We can do it. On, we can do it on Denver, too, since I live right downtown. It's not not as good here as it should be. Not it's as not, good as it It's not be. San Francisco. You're right. But I will tell you, the last time my partner and I, Scott, drove to Denver, because, you know, so many things are remote now. But the last time we went into downtown, I was like, what the hell? What's going on around here? What happened to... What, 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 it's not as clean as it used to be. What the hell is going no, on around? It here? really, it really has gone down, and it's it's important to get it back because right. you know it's a if people are not don't feel safe on the street, they're not going to come back down. I mean, the city has yeah. revitalized yeah. a lot in the last six or eight months, but there will be a limit to bringing people back down here, but down to Denver to live and people Agreed. down to Denver to work unless unless they clean it up. Totally agree. To Totally agree. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because I know we could spend an hour on it. But yeah, I exactly. Let's stay. Let's stay on uh, yeah, more yeah. pleasant topics. Yeah, more pleasant. <laughs> so, tell us about. G- give me the farmland partners, which is what you're doing now, chairman and CEO. And by the way, for the listeners, farmlandpartners.com is the web is the website. Farmlandpartners.com. You can also. Paul's not a huge LinkedIn guy. I can tell. But uh, nope. he's on. <laughs> I'm not a big social media guy. Yeah, I can uh, tell. No. I can tell. Yeah, you you don't have time for that, man. Uh, now, if you want to, that- if you want to find me, you can email me or call me. <laughs> it's easy. Okay. Um, um, give us the overview, if you don't mind. Farmland Partners, kind of uh, why you started it and what it is today. Yeah. So this this is probably the third or maybe even the fourth major sort of entrepreneurial thing that I've done in my life. Um, and what Farmland Partners is, just quickly, is we're a New York Stock Exchange listed company. We own about a billion four of farmland around the United States. We own in 18 or 19 states, uh, 300 and some odd farms. Our business model is to own the farms and rent them to a family farmer. 
um, and we collect rents and distribute those rents in the form of dividends out to our shareholders. Very simple business model. We don't directly operate the farms. We look for good tenants uh, to run these farms for us. And a lot of people don't understand that just an aside about how American production agriculture is organized. Your typical farm family would own maybe 25 or 35 percent of the land they farm and rent the rest of that. Yes. Some of the some of which they rent from their grandmother or, you know, some family friend that lives in the area but doesn't still farm. And the rest of it they rent from an investor like us. Could just be a wealthy individual. Uh, but uh, that's our basic business model. It's a company that I went public in 2014. My first investments, though, in farmland, because the predecessor to the public company was, was my own business. Uh, my first investments were in the mid-1990s. It was the first farms that I bought. Wow. Okay. And how many acres right now do you own? Oh, we, we own 165,000 acres roughly nationwide. And then we manage another twenty-five or 30,000 for other people that we don't directly own, but we manage it. And when you say manage, so if I own... Help, we help them find a tenant is what it really comes down to. I see. Okay. Very, very good. We do not, right. we do not operate. No, no tractor driving. We used to do that, but it's a harder business. Owning the land's the easy part. Okay. So it's not, it's, it's obviously, it's a, it's a stock traded company. So if you want to get involved, if you're yeah. listening now and you want to get involved, you're just buying stock, I guess there is. No yeah, other... you, you can go, yeah. You can go to the New York stock exchange or whatever stock broker you use. Ticker symbol is FPI traded on the New York stock exchange. What are you at today? What's the trading at today? Oh, it's, I didn't look in the last few minutes, probably somewhere between 1450 and $15 a share. And what is that over the last, is that high or low for the last 12 months? Oh, what? our stock's probably doubled in the last uh, two years or year and a half. We've, we've continued to be pretty strong, even in the recent downturn. We, like any public company, have gotten hurt here in the last couple months, but not as much as everybody else. And that's really for a super simple reason. At the end of the day, global food demand essentially always keeps increasing. We can talk about why if you want. Yes, do and, and and farmland is scarce. So, you know, did you eat this morning? Did you eat at lunch? You're going to eat tonight. More importantly, if you have kids, are they going to eat? Yes. <laughs> that is what drives our business. I mean, the hunger in the world has not been completely done away with. Right. And uh, you've got a lot of, uh, you know, you, but what really drives increases in food consumption is increases in GDP. Uh, when people get a little wealthier, they want a much more nutritious and a much more varied diet. And what that really means is, you know, when you think about it, we could all just eat a pile of corn or a pile of wheat or a pile of rice and get our calories. But it's not super nutritious and it's also not very healthy. Um, but so what happens is first we want more protein, which is meats and dairy, uh, because of the metabolic rate of the animal itself you lose a bunch of calories sustaining the animal that don't get passed through to, to the food chain for humans. Mm -hmm. But we all want protein and it's good for us. And then fruits and vegetables. I mean, it's again, very healthy. It's good for our bodies, but it's not this. You can't grow the same calories of carrots on an acre of land as the same calories of corn. And so what happens is we, as we get a, a higher wealth effect all across the world, 
you get ever increasing demand for farmland and the foodstuffs that come from that land because of this advancement of the diet that we all want. Are you so, are you targeting certain farmland to grow certain things? No, we want to. We as a model want to reflect uh, basically U.S. output of the primary food commodities. So okay. if the biggest crop in the United States is corn, we want more acres of corn than anything else. And if the right. second biggest is soybeans, then that's the second biggest. And we have a portfolio that largely reflects total U.S. output of foods. Um, so to think about it, our portfolio is about 70%, the primary crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, and a little bit of livestock. Because I, I jokingly say it, but it's true. A cow is corn on the hoof. That's all a cow is. And so, uh, and then the about 30% of our, our, our uh, business is specialty crops, which would be vegetables, um, uh, tree nuts, and citrus. Okay. And, uh, apples, things like that. Okay. You're not and that's investing... roughly U.S. output of food. All right. And you're not investing in any land for cattle farms, chicken farms, anything like that? Nothing? You're no. Not we, have a, we, have a, we have a couple of feedlot properties in here in Colorado um, okay. that raise cattle. But generally speaking, it would be less than 1% of our overall portfolio. It's mostly okay. row crop farmland or the specialty crops like i said citrus and okay nuts. and are you talking are you targeting a, ge a geographic area or just wherever you see an opportunity uh, anywhere in the united states with good water good soils and a high high quality tenant base that's why we're in you know the biggest state for us is illinois uh, that's where my business started it's also a you know really key production state second biggest though is is uh uh california so, you know, the, the biggest part, the, the most food in America is grown in the core of the Midwest, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, you know, eastern Nebraska, et cetera. Um, and the second most important ag region is the Central Valley of California. There's a lot of high value crops there because it's one of the few places in the U.S. you can grow, you know, fruits and vegetables uh, for the population. When you say high quality tenant base, just for the listeners, do you mean good people that can run the farm correctly? Exactly. That simple. <laughs> <laughs> people, people, and, and, you know, being a successful farmer today, you know, you got to be part agronomist, part business person, good marketer. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of skills and, uh, and the, you know, they're these families that have done this, you know, it's a, it's a little known fact, but about 90,000 families grow about 90% of the food in the country. The Isn't USDA would say there's two and a half million farmers. But yeah. 90,000 of them grow 90% of the food we eat. Wow. The rest are kind of smaller, almost hobby farmer size. Yeah, hobby farmers. So when you buy a farm, and I, this, I'm going to use, use commoner language here. You buy a farm and Sue, Sue and Joe own it, or they did own it, but they sold 90% to you. Maybe they keep 10%. And now they're they're now you're employing them to go ahead and run the farm basically is that how it yeah, works? not not employing not employing exactly it would it would be the better model would be if you think about the local restaurant in town okay the local restaurant probably doesn't own the building the restaurant's in they rent the building i got from you. a landlord I we're just you. a landlord i see and that's the business operator and they operate the business within the bounds of the law basically however they want you know, we, as long we as say they pay, we as need long to, as they're, I see, I as see, long as they pay the rent, if we need to teach them to farm, well, we need a different tenant. 
Understood. Are they paying rent based on the crops that are grown? Or no, are they well, flat? In, a, in a long-term sense, Steve, yes, they're paying based on the productivity of the land. Okay. But in a narrow sense, they pay a, usually pay a cash rent that's a fixed number, renegotiated every couple of years. I see. But a core, and, and that's for simplicity. I mean, I over the long term, it will reflect what the productivity of that land is and, and the price of the crops. But in a short term sense, um, instead of me trying to measure how much corn they grew, we've just agreed on a fixed number for a given year. Okay. I think I saw financing or something like that on your website. If I'm the if I'm Joe Farmer and we did this deal and then two years later I need a couple of brand new tractors that cost two hundred and fifty grand each. Can you can you help me with that? Well, we won't help we won't lend against a tractor, but we will make a loan to a farmer against the farmland he owns. And then he can use the dollars for anything he wants. Okay. We, for our, I mean, what we, un, I don't understand what a tractor is worth. I understand what land is worth. And our staff you. and our company I understands see. land. So we, okay. most farmers have quite a bit of land that they've got all or mostly paid for. And we're happy to help farmers access that capital by making a loan secured by the farm, by the farm itself. And that's our business. So it's, again, it's all back to the land. That's what we can underwrite to and understand. What happens if you get a bad tenant, so to speak, just like the restaurant, just like the building that had the, the farmers got, well, got to go. Here, here's what's interesting about this asset class. Zero vacancy. Right. I guess so. Right. Not, gonna... not near, not near zero, but zero. And so what happens and the reason there's a reason for that. The returns to scale for an operating farmer are huge. They're already in the business. They already own equipment. They already understand the business. And so if a farm next door comes available in a matter of a, literally a few extra hours of annual work, they can take on those acres if they're already in the business in that neighborhood. So because of that, we lose a tenant for some reason. Um, you know, I'll give you an, give you an example. We, we, it's a terrible story, but we had a tenant who was in a terrible car accident and died. And here's the, the widow with the lease to us mm. and the season just about to start. We just told the, we just told the widow, don't worry about it. And we went out and we found another tenant. That other tenant paid exactly the same as the prior farmer was paying. Okay. And that's just the way the business works. And again, it's back to what I said about 10 minutes ago, because we have essentially an unmet demand for food in yeah. the world. Right. There's somebody ready to come in and farm it and they can make money doing it in the, you know, they may not make, they may or may not make money in any given season, but over, over an average of seasons, that's a very profitable and successful business because it's meeting a basic human need. Right. Are you, I, I don't understand how the farming thing works necessarily, but I always hear they're subsidized by the government. There's all these things that the, you know, is that like, so, ma like so many things you hear, not really. <laughs> Uh, so there, there, there is, um, there are a series of government programs, okay. but most of those programs are doing one of two things. They're either incentivizing the farmer to do certain behaviors that mm. are probably not necessarily perfectly economic, mm. but as a mm. society, we've decided we want them to do that, like leave a lot of wildlife habitat, which is great for society. But the farmer says, hey, wait a minute, I could have a few more acres of corn or I could have a bunch of rabbit and deer habitat. <laughs> well, if society wants him to have rabbit and deer habitat, 
they can make a payment, and that's what they do, and say set that land aside into wildlife uh, habitat. The second, though, example, and this is the big one, um, uh, so is that uh, there's a crop insurance program that is subsidized by the government, but also partly paid for by the farmers. And that crop insurance program is really a food security program when you get right down to it. So what that does, to use an example, back in 2012, terrible, terrible drought drought in the United States. I was actually a real farmer then, and we lost our crop. And the crop insurance program allowed us to come back the next year and still be in business and plant a crop. We didn't make any money that year, but we basically could pay our mortgage. We could pay off the inputs we put in, even though we had no crop. If that federal crop insurance wasn't there, you would have had you would have had something like two thirds of the farmers unable to financially plant the crop the next year. And then we would have had true hunger here in the United States. Gotcha. And so this federal crop insurance is a great program. It's you know, it's not it's a it's a government policy that actually makes a lot of sense. It's been around for a long time, but it needs to be perceived as a total sort of food security program. And there's one other thing that leads to the, the, to, the, to the principle you just expressed. So the USDA budget, the farm bill, is like 80% the food stamp program, right? <laughs> it's not really subsidizing farmers. It's subsidizing somebody else. Right? Gotcha. So, I yeah. see. And so there's this sense that it's a great big ticket, but a big piece of it's a welfare program. And, and again, as a, as a society, we can decide if we want to do that or not, but don't blame the farmer for that cost are you all about buying the farms that grow food long term or are you flipping some of this land and two-part question do you ever buy land from a farmer that you know commercial is going to happen pretty soon and you're going to flip it to a commercial outfit for no we're 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 not a we're not a development fund masquerading as a farm fund um (laughs) that's how i meant that's how i meant to ask the question exactly we we um Oh, I get asked this question a lot, which is why I had a good answer. But we are, we want to buy and underwrite ag value. Now, right. if we, you know, and so we're not, you know, sitting here in Denver, we, we own a lot of farms in Colorado because it's where our headquarters are. But most of our land is by uh, Hollyoke, for example, if you know where that is, way up okay. in the northeastern yeah. corner of the state. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot way down by Springfield in the far southeastern corner of the state. Okay. We've got a lot by Burlington. You know, if you okay. drive I-70 almost to Kansas, yep. there's Burlington. Yep. And so these are not rapidly yep. developing yep. locations. <laughs> um, but they're the good farming regions of the state of Colorado, and that's why we've gone there. Um, and so, now look, once we own a piece of land, somebody comes along, I and mean, we, we're fiduciaries for our investors. Somebody comes along and wants to buy it or rent it for solar, for wind, for some sort of other development of any nature, we'll certainly consider it. But, you know, we kind of got lucky, uh, to okay. be honest. And you okay. know, if you own as much land as we do, we get lucky pretty frequently. But, <laughs> it's not the, but it's not the plan. How do you find it? How do you find the farmers knocking on your door saying, hey, man, I need help. Please buy this. You well, got, we, sure- we, we've gotten big enough now that, that we have 110 separate tenants spread across the country 
those tenants are out looking for farms because they want to expand their operation without having to buy the farm themselves. So they bring us a lot of ideas. I see. And then, of course, we have a brokerage division based in uh, the Midwest, but in offices in Iowa and Illinois and a couple other places. They bring us opportunities. Uh, and then, of course, we use other brokers that that uh, all across the country looking for opportunities. And, you know, we we advertise and we've got to be in the course of our of our you know life as a public company pretty well known. So we had a lot of inbound calls with transaction opportunities. Are you big enough now to where you aren't personally involved with deciding whether or not to buy 10,000 acres? Or are you still, you're still doing no, that? No, I, I would be the sort of head of the investment committee, <laughs> if you will, on what we buy. Um, you know, I've done this uh, with my own capital and then, and then with uh, public market capital for 25 years now. And so I've got a lot of experience and I, uh, we, you know, we got a great team and there's a lot of other people involved, but I'm still involved in the a decision to buy or to sell a property. Uh, you're still the largest shareholder right now? or I'd be, the, I'd be the second or third largest shareholder today. There's a couple of institutions that own more than I do, but I own about a two and a half million shares. So quite a few. Okay. I guess I was going to. So, okay. Gotcha. So have you ever passed on a purchase when the land and the water looked right? but you met the family and you met the farmer and you're like, no, I'm not doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Life's too <laughs> short. Right. Don't do, okay. Don't do right. I mean, this, this is like a life's lesson. Don't do business with people you're not comfortable with. I, I can almost, it, you don't have to like them. Yeah. Right. But, but you have to think they're of high character. Good. And that I can almost visualize you driving away. I can almost see you in the, truck or the car driving away from a farm after having dinner with the family over there and you're calling your guys and you're like no when i no guys gonna rip us all you guys gonna rip us off let's get out of here let's go buy a different farm uh very that, doesn't happen, that doesn't happen very often but it absolutely happens and you know yeah. for for listeners of the podcast that's a, that's an important business lesson don't force a deal doesn't feel absolutely. right move on you said it life's too short to be working with assholes that's for sure <laughs> exactly bad character. Tell me about the water situation. I, 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 and I know we could probably do a whole podcast just on that topic, but when you say good water, I, I, the supply of it, the quality of it, the cost of it, all the above, what, what do so you let's, mean? Yeah. W- water as a resource is so incredibly misunderstood. I, I read a bunch of stuff in this weekend in the business press that yes, boggles yes. the mind. So let's I've start with it. a, let's start with a couple of principles. Great. First, the water system of the world is a closed system. Okay. So when somebody says we're running out of water, the amount of water in the world is always the same. Where's it going? Mars, right? I mean, it's <laughs> we are misusing it. Ooh. We are using it in the wrong places. We are certainly in regional, in a regional sense, using water that shouldn't be used for those those purposes in a particularly dry climate. We'll come back to that. You mean like Vegas? You mean like watering lawns in Vegas? Yeah, exactly. But this concept (laughs) that says we're like running out of water. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You use it. It rows into a river. It evaporates. It comes back. I mean, it comes back down. The problem is, is we put it in Vegas. It evaporates there and it rains in Ohio. Right. That's what happens. So, Uh so, what we're so that's the first thing which you just have to wrap your head around. I mean, we got to use it cleanly, we got to use it efficiently, we got to use it in the right locations for the right things. But the amount of water, short of 
somehow poisoning in some horrendous way. It's a cycle. So that's number one. Number two, um, when you talk about the United that that agriculture is the biggest user of water in the country, well, to be intellectually honest, you don't need to worry about the water that's being used for agriculture east of Omaha. Okay. The problem east of Omaha is too much water yep. in most places, not too little. So now what we get to do is we go to the arid west, you know, western Kansas, western Nebraska, Colorado. And how do we use our water in those locations? And what we need to be doing is using water that is fundamentally sustainable. So let's tell you what that means in simplest of terms. If you're pumping an aquifer that is not replenishing at a rate faster than it replenishes, that's not sustainable. It's really quite simple. It's not a political statement. Either yeah. way, it's, yeah. well, it only rains 15 inches of a year there, and we're taking 25 inches of water out of the ground every year. Guess what? <laughs> the bathtub's going to get low. Yeah, that's what's it. happening, and that's what's happening to Lake Mead and Lake Powell. What, okay, and then you go, but but now let's use a, use real world example. There's a lot of irrigation up and down the uh, Arkansas River where it comes out of the mountains down by Pueblo. Okay. A lot of a lot of agriculture along the Platte River as it heads from you know Denver on up to Nebraska, all, all the way across Nebraska. That's winter snowmelt comes back every year. You know exactly how much is going to come back. Not always clear. But that's a replenishing system. You could you can have agriculture in the Arkansas Valley and the Platte Valley forever, and and so it's you got to really understand where your water's coming from and is it replenishing. Now you go to the Colorado River system, and the Colorado River system is a, is an immense engineering project, but we have engineered our way into something completely unsustainable, and that is. You, you have built an immense city in Arizona, in particular, in a really dry place called Phoenix and Scottsdale. You've done the same thing in Las Vegas. To some degree, you've done it in Southern California as well. Mm -hmm. And the problem that nobody talks about it is what's unsustainable is having the largest urban area in the entire United States in a fundamental desert. And that's Southern California. <laughs> What that's are they going to do? It's not sustainable with that. It's the, only way, the only answer there is desalinization. Okay. Okay. All right. Because the other thing for agriculture people to understand is at the end of the day, the water will follow the votes. Right. You're not going to dry up Los Angeles to keep vegetable farms in the Imperial Valley. It's not going to happen. And right. I'm, I'm right. a very much a pro ag person, but when you get right down to it, you might dry up a golf course. You might shut down a car wash, but you're not going to cut off water to people's homes. No. And so agriculture will lose the water eventually to urbanization. But as a society, we got to say to ourselves, wait a minute. Why are we? I mean, you want water? Go to Ohio. Rains 45 inches a year. You don't have to you don't have to live in Arizona where it rains 12, 10 do they have the systems built to do the desalina desalination from the ocean and get it so, to Phoenix? So it, it, Israel is the leader in this. Israel okay. has done the, the solution is a couple is a couple fold. Okay. You've got to make choices like all things. Desalinization is a great solution and you can create an awful lot of water that way. Not enough for agriculture, 
Why? But certainly, certainly enough for home use. Why not? Right? Enough? Why not? Uh, it's just total quantity required gets huge. Yeah, but the ocean's so gigantic. But the, I don't I, I, Yeah, but it's a, it's an elect it's an electrically expensive, big electric bill. Okay, so so it's just it's hard to create uh, enough that way. But you could create you can create a lot. And Israel's the leader in this. But the second thing you have to do, and Israel again does this quite well, is you got to decide what your priorities are. Okay, and we have to decide. Uh, you know, every bit of water that you have need back to my point that it's a closed system. Mm-hmm. It needs to get used two or three times before it gets to the ocean. So we need better. We need we need better water uh, treatment plants, or we need better. Well, it's wa- it's wa- it's water treatment. It's environment. You know, it's environmental appropriately environmental behaviors in the first place. So you don't okay. degrade the quality of the water. It's clean it back up. But okay. but you know this is where it starts to conflict with somebody's desire for fishing, and for whitewater rafting. Mm. Okay, mm. those uses don't let you take the water out of the river and use it for something else. Mm. And we've made choices that mean you're just leaving the water in the river, having it flow away. I see. And once it, and once it hits salt water, then it's not usable again until it comes back up and rains on us again. Unless and, they figure, unless they figure out a way to pump it out of the ocean fast enough and cheap enough to get it places, which is a, yeah, a exactly, long way, exactly. a long way away from that. Should I be investing in desalination companies right now? Um, I, I haven't dug into it well enough to really know the answer to that question, but I think it's probably an interesting opportunity because I believe because what you're really doing with the desal plant is you're accelerating the recycling that I talked about. I see. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's a good. And you're also, you know, it wasn't a joke when I said it evaporates in Nevada and rains in Ohio. Yeah. What happens with the desal plant is you're getting the water right back where you need it. You know, I had a guy. I, I, I'll never forget the first time a guy at a water treatment plant told me how things worked. I went out, he was a client of ours for, for Riderflex. We were doing some recruiting for him and uh, he's giving me the tour of the treatment plant and he's showing me the tanks and everything. And they're redoing the lining in the tank. They had emptied one of the tanks and they're redoing the lining. And I said, being ignorant to the whole process, I said, well, uh, I said, well, what, what happens to, where's it, where's it all go once you, once you treat it. (laughs) And he goes, he looks at me like I got two heads. He's like, well, it just goes right back into the river. Don't you know that? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. Cause it's a closed system to your point. Yeah. But I never really, it never really fully hit my head that we're, it's just doing this. We're just, it's, right. it's just doing this. I mean, the, 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 the total water availability, <laughs> uh, like it gives an example, annual rainfall worldwide. Is, yeah. It's almost the same every year. It only shifts around where, it get, where, where it's raining. Not. Yeah, but the problem is there are more people, though. What happens when you get to be 10 billion people, 12 billion people? There probably is a limit at some point, but we're nowhere close to it. I mean, I'm a big believer. Nobody, you know, you, you remember, what is it, uh, Malthus that said we were all going to starve way back in the 70s or even before that, right? Yeah. Look, uh, humans are adaptable and smart. And if we stay optimistic, thus entrepreneurship, you'll solve these problems. Well, uh, did I hear Elon Musk saying we don't have enough people? He kept saying we need more people. <laughs> Look, people, uh, grow, uh, population growth does help the economy grow. It helps the world grow. And, you know, it's, I mean, we certainly have a, you know, if you really look at societal statistics like, uh, you know, live births, life expectancy, yeah. 
healthcare, et cetera, mm -hmm. we are a way better population in terms of health and longevity than we were 40 or 50 years ago. And the population oh, yeah. has skyrocketed, right? Ab absolutely. And so, so, it's, so it's easy to be depressed when you're our age, <laughs> but you shouldn't be. <laughs> it keeps getting better every year. So sci-fi question then, you don't, you don't think your great-grandchildren are going to starve to death or run out of water? We're going to have to go to another planet to live, none of that stuff? No. Okay. So yeah, let, me, let, me use, let me use a real-world example. You could figure out how to clean the water coming out of your house, now coming out of the sewage pipe, and you could have that water clean enough that 30 minutes later it could be back in your faucet. Yeah. It can be done. I see that. I could see that. Yeah, I can and see so, that. Probably... so you're just using the same water over and over again. I, I'll never forget when I explained to my wife, I said, you know, we're just we're just drinking, we're just drinking Estes Park piss, basically, is what happened. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> it, yes. Yes, you sure hope that water treatment plants work pretty well. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Very good. Okay. I really appreciate uh, th that summary. Uh, a couple more just real quick questions, then I want to wrap up here. How as far as the amount of land you own compared to all these other either individuals that own these billions of land or acres or whatever, like what, what, where are you in size? Are you a small landowner, a medium-sized landowner? Oh, I don't, you don't. We're, we're, I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're pretty big. Um, so the biggest landowners of agricultural land in the United States, um, the Mormon church is probably the largest owner. Okay. Um, the second largest is probably uh, Nuveen. It's a large investment company that okay. owns a lot of farmland. They operate through a division called uh, Westchester. Then the John Hancock, the large insurer. Mm. Um, and they're all materially bigger than we are. Uh, and then you get down to high, ultra, ultra high net worth people. Bill Ted Turner. Gates, so on and so forth. There's that group. Okay. But it all depends. A lot of times they have a lot of acres because a lot of them buy ranches. Now, yeah. Bill Gates has been buying farms. See, it's yeah. not acres isn't necessarily the right comparison. It's value. But most of those guys probably own in the neighborhood of what we own, you know, I billion, see. billion and a half of farmland. Um, and then there's a, a bunch of other small, small private funds out there that are our size or slightly smaller than us. Okay. Um, but total institutional ownership of farmland in the United States is under 2%. So it's just not very much. I see. I see. I know that, um, you know, you were a, a mergers and acquisition guy and a, a, starting companies and exiting. And I know I know the business part for you is is a passion, but obviously just the land and agriculture has been a passion and been in your blood for, for many years. What's the like, like, what is the core purpose now for Paul? Like, what what's your what's your goal personally? Are you like, I, I'm trying to make sure the world is fed. I'm trying to sell this thing like what what is the no no for for us it's real for, for us and for me it's it's simple we're trying i mean obviously we're here as a profit making public yeah, company sure. of course sure. but sure. but really what we're trying to do is to bring urban investor capital back into rural america i see and and think how little most people today really understand about how their food is grown yeah, and if and if we get people to invest in farmland through a vehicle like this, it forces them to think about some of the things we just talked about, like yeah. 
you yeah. know, makes you confront the reality that, wait, wait, wait a minute. Number, number one, you're not wasting water growing food. It always drives me nuts when I hear people say you're wasting water. Okay, you don't eat. I want to eat. Okay. <laughs> I and mean, we can argue about whether we ought to grow food that uses less water or something like that. Yeah, right. But I mean, I, I don't view growing food for humans as a waste of water. I, I don't. Um, and, and so, you know, but, but when you own farmland, it makes you start thinking this way. And, you, and you know, when somebody sends you an article that says, we're using way too much water for, for agriculture. Well, wait a minute. If it's, if it's out, we're there in, in, you know, Chicago, near Chicago, there's a lot of water there. It's okay. You know, it's not going to hurt anything. That's why it's so humid. And, you know, same in Mississippi, same in Arkansas. And so, so it's these sorts, you know, what we view this as is we're a way to bring a capital of investors back into small town, rural America and invest in, what is an incredibly important industry. It's, you know, you got housing, you got technology, you got agriculture, oil and gas, right? I mean, certainly a top four or five industry in the country is food production. And I would certainly argue um, probably the most important industry in the country at some level. I mean, if you had to if you shut the rest of them down, I don't shut the food one down because uh, we got it. We got to eat. How much longer are you going to do this, Paul? What's the, what's the plan? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm 60. So, I mean, I'll, I will gradually, but it'll be very gradual, start to phase out over the next five years or so, probably maybe 10. I okay. uh, got a great team behind me and they'll continue. You know, the number two guy in the company's worked with me for 23 years. Very, He's nice. oh, very see. capable. Uh, you know, I think he would do just as good a job as me, maybe better. Speaks volumes that he's worked with you for that long. You get, you yeah. trust him completely, obviously. And you, he's like family almost at this point. Yeah, exactly. And obviously I've treated him pretty well or he wouldn't have stuck around. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Taylor, Kurt Patrick, Babson's farms, downtown runs a family office, owns a lot of land. I do know the family, but I don't know them personally. Oh. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's a, he's an advisor for Ryder Flex. I told him this morning cause he, they own a lot of land and I, he said, Oh Yeah. I, I know farmland partners. He didn't know yeah. you personally yet, though. No, no. <laughs> well, good. Paul, great interview. Thank you for sharing your story on the Rider Flex podcast. I really appreciate it, sir. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it.